today on Ag News Daily. But then also acknowledging that to decarbonize, we are going to need to host some land-based solar. Listeners, welcome back to the Ag News Daily Podcast. Tanner Delaney here, May 9th, 2023, Tuesday edition. Delaney, had a long weekend, took yesterday off for the podcast. So how are you doing? I'm good, other than some of the weather we got over the weekend. But other than that, no complaints. It's starting to really heat up, Tanner. Yes, we're uh, definitely going to see a lot of plant growth here. We're going to get a lot of these seeds that were hurry up and planted earlier last week uh, to pop out of the ground. We do have a little bit of weather still in the forecast here. Storms for parts of the Dakotas and Minnesota for most of today, says the National Weather Service. Showers are expected with a marginal risk of severe weather. So it's good to see some just true rain coming to their areas. Obviously, if Minnesota gets stronger storms and heavy downpours, this could add to the flooding risk that we have downstream. Obviously, that doesn't hit exactly tomorrow, but it'll be something that we'll continue to watch. Missouri, Southern Illinois has isolated thunderstorms in their forecast for today into tonight. Chances of precipitation continue through the beginning of next week. So it looks like maybe a cloudy forecast for most of our listeners this week. It does, but that is not keeping farmers out of the field, Tanner, as we saw crop conditions and crop progress for the week progress nicely. Corn planting really sped up last week, moving ahead 23 percentage points with now 49% of the U.S. corn crop planted as of Sunday, May 7th. That is 28 percentage points ahead of last year and about seven points ahead of the five-year average. Notably, Iowa was 70% planted, Illinois 73% planted, and that certainly helped push numbers higher. About 12% of the U.S. corn has emerged as of Sunday, so also seeing those little guys popping through the ground. And on the soybean side of things, we saw planting move ahead 16 percentage points to reach 35% planted as of Sunday, 24% higher than last year, and well above the five-year average, which were typically about 21% planted by this time of year. So farmers are getting in the field and getting things planted, Tanner. But as far as crop conditions go, nationwide winter wheat was rated 29% good to excellent, up one percentage point from the week prior. So not seeing sizable increases in conditions there. But nonetheless, hopefully some of these rains reach those winter wheat and spring wheat areas that could really use it. Yeah, you're exactly right. So we'll continue to monitor those. Thanks for reporting on that. Going to continue to watch the farm bill discussion. Uh, Rubio has now put together his version of the bill that excludes soda and prepared desserts from the SNAP program. For those that don't remember, that's the Supplemental Nutrition Assistance Program. 20% of SNAP spending goes to unhealthy food and drinks, says Rubio costing taxpayers billions of dollars and contributing to the nation's obesity and diabetes crises. The issues received actually some bipartisan support so far. The progressive and potentially money-saving measure is one of those that could provide excess budget availability for more agriculture programs. Ag secretaries are continuing to monitor this uh, revision to the bill as it comes through the Congressional Budget Office, looking at putting together their budget estimate as far as the impact of this next farm bill. 
Nutrition spending accounts for nearly 82% of the bill's spending. When you look at that, Delaney, this would potentially lower it down to 76%. So giving us a little bit more room there. Uh, obviously, as we look at the progression of this bill, we'll continue to watch the minor changes that are made throughout the process. But right now, uh, that could be a significant impact in the favor of farmers. So still talking about food, Delaney, I'm glad that you guys covered the record-breaking 14-year-old Holstein that you reported on yesterday. If you guys didn't catch that, go look her up because I'm still blown away by the amount of servings and how many people that one cow could take care of. So I'm glad you guys caught on that. I'm still flabbergasted by the amount of milk production out of one cow, Delaney. Yeah, maybe you have had some milk out of her. That's scary to think, but I probably have. It's wild to think about for sure. But Tanner, I think it's also wild how quickly we have seen the Mississippi River levels come back down after we were talking flooding just a week or two ago. According to Mike Steenhook with the Iowa Soybean Transportation Council, he shared in his latest update on Mississippi River conditions that water levels are finally receding. As we look at the river gauge readings from the National Oceanic and Atmospheric Administration, along with the Mississippi River readings, you can see that river levels at various locations along the Mississippi are finally on the decline. But some areas, such as Rock Island, remain at major flooding stages. Uh, The trend line is to be at moderate flood stages later this week, so it's expected to see all levels along the Mississippi really start to come back down by week's end. And so I know we saw some flooding, especially in the Quad Cities area and along that Mississippi River, but maybe not going to be quite as dire as we had originally thought. Well, that's good because uh, obviously we don't want to see things uh, turn south that far. So now we're talking prehistoric finds. We're looking in southeast Michigan. The Satterwaite family grows corn and soybeans on their farm. And uh, Bristol, who's 75, has nearly a 600-acre farm, and they just discovered remains from a woolly mammoth. So as they were looking through their soybean crop, they found an obstruction, dropped their backhoe into the soil, and it groaned, according to this article, Delaney. Buckets in, bones out, as they were looking to remove an obstruction from their field, that was going to be in the way of their soybean crop. They discovered a woolly mammoth and they brought the bones of this woolly mammoth alive from more than a 15,000 year sleep, according now to prehistoric archaeologists, to look at what this woolly mammoth skeleton alongside three telltale boulders that were the initial target for the farmers to remove. I couldn't believe what that would feel like, Delaney as these farmers were looking just to move rocks out of their field and they found the skeleton of a woolly mammoth. So as they dig in, they are now concerned that there may be other pieces within their field as they are looking through this. The backhoe initially pulled out an an odd shaped object that was not a rock and it was actually a rib bone. So as far as that goes, They started asking neighbors if they had remembered any cattle running in this area initially, and if there had been a cattle gravesite, but the rib bone was much larger than any cow that they had either seen. So what an interesting discovery for these Michigan farmers as they 
dug out the depth of this. And if you look at the pictures, Delaney, the tusks of this woolly mammoth are way more than three times the size of the humans standing around them. So quite an interesting story to follow up on. It is. I saw that piece of news as well. So glad you popped that here into our listeners' ears. But another story I've been watching here has been the ongoing relationship between Brazil and other trading partners, but now including the United States. The governor of Mato Grosso spoke at the Nebraska Irrigation Committee meeting the other day, more specifically the Water for Food Conference hosted by the University of Nebraska, where officials in Nebraska allowed Mendez and other Brazilian officials to speak in years prior, and this year the dialogue focused on irrigation. Mendez specifically said here that he'd like to learn more about irrigation strategies, specifically from the University of Nebraska. And he said that he has a strategy to expand crop production with irrigation in the province of Mato Grosso there in Brazil. But he apparently met Monday morning with Nebraska Governor Jim Pillen, and the two talked about similarities between the two states and some areas where they could potentially work together. Mendez said that Nebraska and Mato Grosso have many things in common. Both are in the center of their countries and both are important food producing states. So interesting partnership there, Tanner, that may come to light, but it sounds like they had a good discussion nonetheless. Yeah, certainly does. Where a discussion is not taking such a positive spin is President Zelensky's comments about the European grain restrictions, stating that they are uh, unacceptable and absolutely atrocious. These protectionist measures coming from neighboring countries banning the imports of Ukrainian grain are deemed unacceptable, according to the president. These are, of course, Bulgaria, Hungary, Poland, Romania, and Slovakia that have used have raised their concerns over local farmers being undercut by the bottleneck of cheap Ukraine grain. So he went and took to the news waves to express his disconcern or his concern for the continued of these bannings. But we also saw Delaney that Russia scaled back their Victory Day celebration. They charted this up to security concerns as it relates to the war in Ukraine. But President Putin spoke briefly in Moscow's Red Square, where only one tank was on display in a very toned down military parade. Of course, analysts are stating that this is just a show of weakness rather than that of precaution. Uh, However, explosions rang out over Kiev Tuesday morning as Ukrainian air defenses intercepted multiple cruise missiles fired by Russia. This was, according to their reports, the fifth largest scale aerial bombardment targeting the capital this month. Uh, Obviously, we're looking to continue to watch for the anticipated Ukrainian counteroffensive. Authorities in Russian-occupied towns along the southern front have evacuated thousands of civilians in preparation for this. So we'll continue to watch. And of course, the U.S. is set to announce another $1.2 billion aid package to Ukraine today. And if that happens, I'm sure we'll have more to report on tomorrow. Well, Tanner, we are seeing some fresh legislation come out as the Treasury Department's Office of Investment Security proposed a new rule on Friday that would require foreign entities to garner U.S. government approval before they are able to purchase land within 100 miles of eight different military bases. This is coming out as we've seen lots of states at a state level 
govern and pass legislation about foreign farmland and purchase investments in their respective states. But Senator Kevin Kramer welcomed news of the proposed rule, which could have blocked the North Dakota land sale to the Fufang Group. He said this is a good first step and is eager to see what the Office of Investment Security does to continue to push this forward. And it sounds like this office in particular would also be the entity responsible for screening foreign business dealings in the United States and also has the authority to block or force term changes in sales in order to protect national security. But it does make sense that they are not able to purchase land within a couple of the major military bases here in the United States. Yeah, I don't think this is a surprise to any and probably some wondering why it took so long for those discussions to come about. But Delaney, I'm out of news for today. It looks like uh, maybe we're feeling a little bit about the corn planting progress in our markets or how did those shape up in the overnight? Yes, absolutely, Tanner. They are certainly trading some of that news, seeing the crop get in the ground and the question mark for, you know, are we going to have any sort of struggle this growing season? Although it's still pretty early on in the growing season to know for sure, but certainly positive that farmers are getting in and getting planted. In the overnights today, July corn lost eight cents to close to open here this morning at 5.88 and a half. Deese new crop corn will open at 522 down seven and three quarter cents in the overnight. July soybeans lost 11 and three quarter cents to open this morning at 1422 and a half. November new crop beans will open here this morning at 1263 down nine and a half pennies in the overnight. Hard red July winter wheat shed four cents to open at 840 and a quarter. And a quick look at where livestock markets left closed yesterday. August live cattle added 57 and a half cents to open this morning at about 607 and a half. August feeders will open a dollar sixty-seven and a half cents higher at two twenty-three ten, and June lean hogs shed forty-seven and a half cents yesterday at eighty-three thirty. Tanner, today we are talking smart solar technology for today's Tech Tuesday interview. Well, folks, for today's Tech Tuesday interview, we are going to be focusing the conversation around technology specifically related to smart solar. Chatting today with two folks from the American Farmland Trust, Ethan Winter, the National Smart Solar Director, and Samantha Levy, the Conservation and Climate Policy Manager. Thank you both for joining us today. Certainly excited to dig in more and learn about some of the solar programs and things you're focused on here as we head into climate focus with the next farm bill. But before we get into that, Ethan and Samantha, let's chat a little bit more for our listeners who are not familiar with American Farmland Trust. Give us the 10,000 foot view of why you guys were formed and what are some of the areas that you focus on? Well, thank you so much for having us uh, today. American Farmland Trust was founded in 1980. Uh, we've been around for 40 years, and our mission is to save the land that sustains us by protecting farmland, promoting sound farming practices, and keeping farmers on the land. Uh, and that work has involved helping to lead farmland protection programs around the country, developing um, practices and uh, incentives for regenerative agriculture. And increasingly now, we're looking at energy because of the footprint uh, and the opportunities as well that it provides for farmers. 
And I think this is coming at such a key time because as we look at the current administration, they have obviously been very focused on finding alternative solutions for energy as well as finding alternative solutions for uh, climate smart practices for farmers and agriculturalists. So I'm glad we're having this conversation right now. But as you look at the future of solar in particular, set up the landscape for us, because I think that a lot of folks are still looking at other areas uh, as far as opportunities for energy. We've had a lot of discussion within this administration about electric. How does solar fit into that picture overall? Well, we're really at the very beginning of a massive transition in this country from a fossil fuel dominated power grid to a clean energy grid, primarily solar and wind. And that's being driven by uh, just pure market economics. The cost declines in solar now make it the most uh, economical source of new electricity. Uh, it's gone down price-wise by about 80% over the last decade. A number of states have very ambitious renewable portfolio standards. States like New York, Virginia, Illinois, California, big agricultural states have uh, committed to 100% clean energy uh, over the next 20, 25 years. And corporations are increasingly interested in clean energy procurement. And that's driving a lot of the clean energy demand. So the combination of that is really accelerating solar. Uh, and a lot of that is happening in agricultural states. And that's why we're paying so much attention to that. Yeah, you know, I was reading through a recent, I'm going to call it a white paper or a handout for maybe a lack of a better term, focused on smart solar as it relates to where it's going to be placed and its impact in rural America. And I was astonished to read that some of the research that you put forth in this piece suggested that about 83% of new solar builds will occur on agricultural lands with almost half of those being located on some of the most productive farmlands that we have. How do we balance that out? What, what, that seems a little alarming, I guess, to say the least. Yeah. And, and thank you for having us. Yeah. This is a, a key consideration for AFT. You know, traditionally, as Ethan mentioned, we've been a farmland conservation organization dedicated to helping producers protect their land, keep it in production. And, you know, I think that we're finding that developers, the same characteristics that make land well-suited for farming also can make it well-suited for hosting a solar energy project. So the flatter the land, the less rocky the land, the clearer the land, developers, these are the kinds of things that will be cost reducers for developers, or at least, you know, without them, costs can increase. So there's definitely an overlap. Um, of course, Ethan will remind, and, you know, we hear this all the time from developers, that their greatest challenge is interconnection onto the grid. So they're always also looking for the um, land sites that are near infrastructure that they can connect into. But in terms of what do we do about that, you know, I, I'm our policy person related to climate and conservation at AFT. And we think about policy. You know, we think about putting policies in place at the local, state and federal level that will help advance smart solar. As you said, and what we mean by that is 
prioritizing policies that prioritize siting on marginal land, the built environment, previously contaminated lands, rooftops, barn tops, but then also acknowledging that to decarbonize, we are going to need to host some land-based solar and that this can be an opportunity for some, some landowners, um, you know, to, to gain some money from lease payments. And that's an attractive financial opportunity for them. And so, uh, making sure that we're doing this in the best way possible, that we're, uh, that we're ensuring that times of construction, decommissioning, that the, that the developer is following best practices to ensure that the soil won't get too compacted, the topsoil remains in place, that the very least vegetation is planted throughout the lifetime of the project, which can be a few decades, um, that there are opportunities in place and incentives for farming to occur um, throughout the life of the solar project. We call that agrivoltaics. And also that there's proactive planning um, being done in communities to identify the places that they'd most like to see solar development happen and the places they'd most like to protect up front. So, Samantha, I think that's a good segue to looking a little bit at this next farm bill, because, again, we've really seen with the release of some of the climate smart grants, a lot of dollars being allocated towards conservation practices, alternative energy options such as solar. Um, what do you see as top priorities for this farm bill? And, and is lobbying part of something that you guys are doing at American Farmland Trust? Every day. Yeah. Uh, <laughs> Yep, we speak with members of Congress every day. We've got um, very talented staff throughout the country working at the state and regional level, speaking to folks in state houses, um, governors, administrations, um, even county governments and local governments and developers themselves and landowners themselves. So we really um, we engage in this in a lot of different spaces, understanding that permitting for solar projects often does happen closer to the ground. So when it comes to Farm Bill, though, there are opportunities for the federal government to be working to advance smart solar. For example, some states have um, done the thinking about what those best practices look like for construction and decommissioning to safeguard the ability for the land to be farmed in the future. You know, these are temporary structures, developers tell us, 30 years maybe more, and they'll come off and you can farm it again. And so we want to make sure that that's the case. Some states don't haven't been able to put the thinking into that, though. And so we see a role for USDA, potentially the Natural Resources Conservation Service and RCS, to be looking at what should those best practices look like and just to put out some guidance, some recommendations, states, um, local governments, permitting authorities, developers, even landowners um, can tap into when they're faced with a solar lease. Another opportunity in the farm bill that's being discussed on the Hill is around advancing agrivoltaics. This is an area that's new. It's on the cusp. It's an innovation here that could potentially, you know, reduce this, as they'll say on the Hill, this zero sum game between solar or farming and have them occur um, in an integrated way on the same piece of land. But we need a lot of research, uh, more research to be put into that so that this um, this opportunity can scale up and more developers and more farmers um, who may be interested in it feel it's the right option for them. So those are just a couple of examples. And then finally, actually, I'll say you mentioned the 
the dollars that will be put towards alternative energy through, you know, USDA's rural development programs like REAP, the Renewable Energy for America program. This is an opportunity, a fantastic opportunity for USDA to be a model and model smart solar development in their application process. So we're looking at all those opportunities and more in the Farm Bill and with the administration to really advance this at the federal level. Plenty of important work to talk about at the state and local level, too, though. Yeah. And as you look at the future here, let's say five, 10 years out, as we move toward having some of these alternative energy options, what do you see happening as a best case scenario? What would be your dream state five, 10 years from now at those local state uh, and federal levels? Well, I think it's a it's a great uh, thought exercise to think about what solar could be and how it could do more uh, to Samantha's point about agrivoltaics we see a potential for much greater integration of um, growing crops and forage, uh, even uh, livestock like sheep, potentially cattle around uh, solar arrays. And there's a lot of innovation happening in the solar sector around uh, the design of systems that could accommodate that. And if we look to countries like Germany and France and Japan, uh, that are you know, land constrained and really trying to protect their uh, their food systems and their uh, their farming heritage. We're seeing some uh, great innovation that we could bring into uh, the U.S. And so I guess you know one vision is that uh, as France has done, agrivoltaics becomes one of the pillars of the national energy program, along with uh, a more aggressive rooftop and built environment solar program and a least impact approach to what we call uh, greenfield development or projects that are uh, more traditionally located on uh, clean you know, farmland, uh, kind of a three, three-legged three stool, but really buttressing the agrivoltaic aspect of that. One area where we're really excited about engaging is in New Jersey. Uh, we're partnering with the Rutgers University Agrivoltaics Program in a project that's being funded by the U.S. Department of Energy Rutgers will be developing test arrays for uh, diversified crops, and AFT will be developing a farmer training program to go along with that. And uh, New Jersey will soon be releasing details on an uh, agrivoltaics program for uh, energy in the state. So we're connecting the research with the farmer training with a state policy backdrop, and we think that's a good formula for other states uh, over the next few years to put it all together. Yeah, and if I may, the only thing I would add to that in terms of visioning for the future is that communities are more well-equipped, more knowledgeable, more engaged in planning, um, proactive planning, and uh, that these kinds of policies are really incorporated into permitting processes, so that we can really be knowing, as you pointed out at the beginning, that farmland is really going to be play such an important and outsized role here that for all scales of solar, from the smaller scale to the utility scale projects, the really large ones, that this thinking about smart solar and um, protecting farm viability or strengthening farm viability with this opportunity writ large all around. Um, that those 
concepts and policies are really infused throughout the permitting processes at the local and state level um, and that the federal government is supporting that so that, you know, farmers can keep farming even in places where solar development is taking place. Um, and that's, I think, uh, a big part of our vision for the future as well. And it will take a lot of uh, community work alongside us at AFT. Um, we're very active across the country and we've got regional offices that folks listening can tap into. If you go to farmland.org, you can find good ways to, to contact us and learn more about our solar work. Fantastic. And what is that uh, website that folks can go to to find out more about that solar work that you mentioned? We have a, um, a lot of new resources and we're adding to them on a pretty much monthly basis. And it's farmland.org slash solar. Yeah. And um, there's a lot of other information on our website about AFT's other programs. And I think it's important to highlight that solar, our smart solar platform is growing. We're adding staff in Texas, uh, the Mid-Atlantic, uh, New Jersey, just hired a Western solar specialist. So we're really building capacity here. And the idea is that all of that work integrates across our other program areas, uh, from farmland protection to regenerative uh, agriculture, and really builds out a, a holistic approach so that farming and farmers are really part of this transition to clean energy. And that's really, uh, I think, the, the powerful vision that we're offering here is that uh, America needs both you know, rapid deployment of renewable energy and productive, resilient farms and ranches. Absolutely. And, uh, to Sam's point, we can do this. We can do this with the right planning and smart solar can be a, a key part of that solution if we're really intentional. And this mm-hmm. is a key moment in this energy transition to be intentional uh, at all levels so that we're um, not sacrificing the, the most productive land for energy, but really thinking about how to do both things at the same time. Yeah. And for any any farmers who may be listening, who are being who are considering a solar lease, we have resources for you on that website. Um, so we definitely recommend checking out farmland.org slash solar. And uh, you can find a landowner guide there that will walk you through some of the considerations. It's one of uh, many resources being created from farm groups across the country to help farmers think through those kinds of opportunities. Fantastic. Well, Ethan and Samantha, thank you both for your time today. Certainly appreciate this insight and discussion we've been able to have today. Us as well. My pleasure. Thank you. Well, there you go, Delaney. Good Tech Tuesday interview for our listeners to enjoy. Stick with us. For the rest of the week, we appreciate everything that you do. Find us on social media and send us the interviews that you want to hear by searching Ag News Daily. But today, what do you say, Delaney? Should we let the listeners go? Let's let them go. 